Hello friends, it's Gabby. Welcome to another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. My Possible Self is the mental health and well-being app that uses clinically certified content to help users improve their thoughts, feelings and behaviour. On to today's subject of conversation, depression is the predominant mental health problem worldwide. In the UK, approximately one in five adults experienced some form of depression in early 2021, which is more than double that observed before the pandemic hits. At the launch of the My Possible Self podcast, we released the episode Dealing with Depression with broadcaster and writer Alistair Campbell. That episode has had and continues to have so many years on it, the team decided we needed to offer some more support on this subject, especially during this particular time of year when so many of us are struggling. James Withy is author and editor of five books about mental health and mental illness. He has an incredible read, How to Tell Depression to Piss Off, 40 Ways to Get Your Life Back, to which James shares his own personal coping strategies with this terrible illness. The advice is born out of James's own experience of dealing with clinical depression and many years of professional work with people suffering from depression. What makes this such a fab read is, yes, it's a heavy subject, but James delivers his advice in such a charming, personal and humorous way. Put it this way, there were many times when he brought a smile to my face right from the get-go with his opening line, depression is a git. Truly, it is. Before we dive into this chat, take note of the trigger warning. This conversation does include references not only of depression, but of suicide as well. I will follow up and add though that if you are a loved one is having suicidal thoughts, you may find James's first-hand experience helpful. And now let's proceed with the episode. We've decided to call the title of this podcast Disengaging with Depression because after diving into into your books yeah. Ah, marvellous. <laughs> this seems to be a, a bit of a running theme going on throughout. I, I feel like I need to start by telling you I really love your narrative like tone because you're talking Thank about you. such a heavy subject, obviously with a lot of humour, but yeah. compassion as well. And um, I just felt like I knew you after reading how to tell depression to piss off oh thank you that's so nice of you thank you yeah that that's definitely the plan is 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 that to write them in a really kind of accessible compassionate but kind of humorous way really and Mm -hmm. there just aren't enough books like that you know certainly when I you know when I first started looking into my mental health and you know there weren't any books like that and and I think you know usually you just find really huge books on CBT, how to defeat depression. And, it's, and you're just kind of looking at it going, like, well, what the hell is this, you know? Yeah. And it's full of jargon and terms that you don't understand. And I kind of wanted to do the exact opposite of that, you know. Well, you did it well. Thank you. <laughs> well, I think as well, I mean, gosh, if you're suffering from depression, you just want to have a bit of a laugh, don't you, as well? Whenever you can, you can if, if you can find somebody that's going through or that's been through what you're going through to a degree but that can also you know raise a smile um like you you certainly did throughout the book 
I think because because you're feeling so crap anyway, you can't you can't read a huge amount, and so that's kind of why I like having sort of short chapters. Mm. Um, but yeah, but also you don't want to relentlessly read about how awful depression is because you know how awful it is. You just you know you need someone to go, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it is really awful, but but kind of make it accessible and bring some humor in you know mm. because otherwise it you know mental health books can be really triggering you know mm. definitely yeah, so. and you've got some fantastic coping strategies which you share in every chapter very short and sweet and to the point through the lens of bringing a smile to your face as well you're somewhat of an expert on the topic of depression and i feel like when we when we look at the word expert it's either academically or through lived experience but I suspect that you probably tick both boxes now yeah it's, it's interesting yeah so I was kind of on one side of the fence and I'm now sort of more on the other yeah so I, I, I trained as a, as, as a counsellor sort of way back or in the, in the dark ages of the mid-1990s mm -hmm. um, sort of straight out of university and sort of spent two years training as a counsellor and then worked in addiction fields and mental health and criminal justice and homelessness you know wow. um, doing counseling and group work you know working sort of directly with people for for about 20 years so yeah I, I sort of have all that experience of um of working with people and then about uh, uh 10 years ago then got really seriously unwell myself so it was then sort of flipped within a matter of months really so I was I was delivering suicide prevention training, you know, one month and then three months later I was on five minute suicide watch. So I literally went from one side to the other. Mm -hmm. And I know there shouldn't be sides, but it definitely feels like, like there are signs sometimes. So yeah, I went from, yeah, sort of being the carer and being the professional to having all those services delivered to me. I always used to talk about, you know, how any of us can be, you know, but a few steps away from you know mental health problems or you know feeling suicidal or homelessness or addiction which is all absolutely true i think once you once you've gone through that yourself gone from one side to the other you, you realize it even more i think i kind of do have a, a bit of a unique view because i spent so long delivering care services and then i spent yeah you know i mean I, I, mental health has been with me all my life but yeah it got got really acutely unwell about about 10 years ago yeah right because I was going to ask you because in, in your book you um, refer to a time before I was ill so I mm. do find that really interesting that before you were ill you were working in mental health do you yeah. think because it must have taken its toll do you think that perhaps a part of of why you became unwell was because you know you were doing such heavy work I think certainly there is a burnout factor for me, um, definitely. And I think there is for a lot of people. And there certainly is if you're not supported properly. But towards the end of my career in care, I was doing training mostly, so training staff. But before that was working, yeah, pretty much at the the acute end of homelessness in, in, and addiction in Glasgow. Um, so was working with people with heroin addictions and alcohol problems, but also a lot of other issues. So abuse issues and, and um, housing issues and, and so on and so on. So yeah, and people have been hugely traumatized by, by various things. So yeah, I, I kind of knew, 
I think a lot of me knew that I was sort of towards the end of that. You know, I think I think there's a, a certain amount that you can give, and then unless you're really, really, really good and 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 almost able to detach in quite a significant way, then it does take its toll. And to be honest, it should take its toll. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, it absolutely should because you're listening and supporting people who've been through massively massive trauma huge trauma in their life yeah and that should take a toll on somebody else you know you shouldn't be hardened to that i i was always of the opinion and still am actually is that is that when you become hardened to that when you're not feeling any of that you shouldn't be working with with people because because you've got too used to it to something that is incredibly Mm. traumatic and painful and and actually that should be touching you Mm. it's just that you also need the coping mechanisms to manage that Mm. and I think I'd just got to the end of my journey with that so I think I think it had taken it definitely had taken a toll on my mental health you know when I look back I you know I had mental health problems since I was very 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 young when my dad died when I was five and then I was abused as a child and you know I had started to have suicidal thoughts about 14 and then I had anorexia at at 19 so you know it's 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 not a case of um that I wasn't unwell it's just that that I think actually because of kind of shame and stigma and all those kind of things I didn't look at myself as somebody with a mental health problem which is just extraordinary really Mm. but also because there was a lack of services and acknowledgement of mental health then you didn't want to sort of put your head above the parapet and say oh I'm somebody with you know mental health problems Mm. so what I was acutely unwell so about yeah 10 years ago and and had suicide attempts and was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and suicide sanctuaries and with crisis team I I suddenly sort of realized that I was somebody with serious mental illness it got so serious that I I could no longer do the job that I was doing I could no longer work and so I sort of see that point as a huge turning point in how I see myself as somebody with a mental illness and also realized that I couldn't go back working in the care sector because Mm I I couldn't take care of myself let alone let alone anybody else you know right so I still have a huge passion for that sector and I kind of do that through my writing really I was gonna say yeah I I work part-time in the library now which I love and then the other half of my life is is writing so I still my connection to the kind of care world that uh, is is through my books yeah mm. do you think anybody is born with depression do you think it can be genetics or something neurological or is it from past events is it from you know abuse grief various mm. traumas do you think there's the two types? I think it's a huge mixture. So I, I think I think certainly for me, I can look at my family and there is a huge thread of mental illness in my family. I mean, it's, it's abundantly clear going back generations and generations. And I think some of us within the family have some of those genes. So, I, and I think then you then develop a predisposition to, to mental illness. Um, and then life events also then impact on that. So I think my life events with a combination of genetic factors meant that, you know, I was somebody with a mental illness. I, I don't know, but I suspect if I hadn't had sort of um, adverse childhood experiences that I would still have some degree of mental illness. I think I would. Um, they may not have been as severe, um, but I think the combination of the two, so once you have, you know, you have difficult life events and you have a predisposition to, to your genes, then 
then that combination is is going to make you much much more likely to have some kind of kind of mental illness it's one of those sort of million dollar questions really is how things come about and, and I, I think one of the things that i i found is is that i've you know asked that question to myself loads and actually you never really find the answer because you don't really you don't really know right yeah. kind of you are where you are yeah so I try try and spend less time going how has this come about or why has this happened to me and you know is it you know is it genes and oh I can look at you know auntie so-and-so and my grandfather that you know and then this happened to me then this happened to me and you know so did that cause that and actually you're never gonna know I try and not ask myself that too many questions because you just end up in a rabbit, <laughs> rabbit mm-hmm. hole yeah. going down and down and down um but I think it's it's a combination. I felt sad when I read this in your book that you say it's common for those who are suffering with depression to believe they're not worthy of help, which I just Absolutely. thought was so sad. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's so awful about depression is that it convinces you you're not worthy of help. So, and it convinces you that you're never going to get better and that, that hope is never going to appear in your life. There's never going to be any hope. But sort of even more beyond that, it then convinces you that it's your fault. <laughs> All those things are your fault. So there's a, it's a kind of multi-layered uh, attack that depression does on you. And because it's in our minds, it's in our brains, it's, it's very difficult to separate out the illness in yourself which is actually really crucial to do, but it makes it very difficult. So yeah, so I... I remember when I first, you know, uh, knew that I needed help, sitting there and going, and there was the depression bit of me saying, you're not worthy of help. You're not worthy of help. You're not worthy of help. Don't bother. No one's going to be interested. This isn't going to work. And there was the other bit of me that, because of my work experience, kind of knew that that was the illness talking. And so there was a fight going on between the two of the the bit of me going, no, James, you'll know you're unwell, you know you need to get help. And the depression bit of me going, don't bother. Don't bother because you're not worth it anyway and you've caused this and you're ugly and horrible and all those other things. So there is this sort of fight going on, which is why when you access services and there isn't any support, it makes it even more difficult because it then reinforces all those horrible, nasty, intrusive, negative messages that depression's giving you. Mm. So it's it is such a difficult thing to manage. I mean it's it's so difficult. Because mm. without any sense of hope or sense of self-esteem, then you are much less likely to get help. Um, and kind of that's why I talk a lot about separating out the illness from yourself so that you can recognize a depressive thought a depression thought and realize that that's not all of you you know that that's the illness talking yeah and I want to take that thread and run with it in a sec but I like we know if you've got a mental illness it's scary to ask for help you might know you need it but even taking those steps to actually get it or seek it out because it is it's hard isn't it and you yourself say it's like you don't always get lucky getting the right help the right psychotherapist or counselor or whatever you need straight away it's like it's a chemistry thing and so on top of that with depression you've got this other layer of not feeling deserving of getting help luckily your book gives us 40 coping (laughs) strategies eh (laughs) but yeah yeah, in terms of separating yourselves from depression I, I really love the fact that you kind of created it as this almost like depression was a secondary character so it's like 
I mean, you you say it's like choose your own adventure to to the reader. It's like you know, is it a I don't know why I'm thinking of the word goblin, but you know, like a monster type yeah. or yeah. you know something that really repels you and and then and that it's creating that distance it's separating you from like you say the illness absolutely i i think that's really crucial so so i i use the image of a cuckoo so i see my depression as a cuckoo so we you know cuckoos kind of land in other people's nests and, and they're kind of unwanted so i kind of see my depression as this cuckoo that that i don't really i don't want living with me in the nest i don't want it there um i've accepted it's going to be there but that doesn't mean I'm going to get pushed out of the nest as well. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to listen to it. In fact, it also means that I'm going to hit it on the head, you know, at various points and go bugger off. You know, you're not you're not going to rule my life. And it does really help because it's then because it's in our minds. It's it's so difficult to separate. But when we try and separate it out, then we can kind of go, yeah, this is depression, the illness. And then this is me. And they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. You know, mm. we wouldn't say cancer is us or heart disease is us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just because it's in our mind, it doesn't mean that we should say depression is us. Mm. So we do have to separate it out. Otherwise, depression will consume us completely. So you have to sort of listen to the voice. So when you know, thoughts are coming into your head, what I do is I kind of go, okay, so that is that is that a voice of depression? Is that the cuckoo, or is that or is that me? Mm. And I become able to kind of go, oh, that that's a thought from depression. You know, that's a thought from the illness. And usually, what I try and do is the opposite of what it's telling me to do, because depression never ever has your best interest at heart. You know, it doesn't want you to go outside and go to the shops. It doesn't want you to take a walk by the sea. It doesn't want you to go to work because depression is, is it will basically lie to us um, and is a fraud and a, and a scammer. So we need to think of it as, well, would we listen to, you know, you know, those emails that you get, they've gone, you've won a hundred million pounds and all you need to do is send us your bank account details. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's kind of what depression does. You know, it's kind of going, it lures us into this kind of way of thinking about ourselves. Like we wouldn't listen to people from that email because it's no, it's nonsense. And actually, depression is also telling us nonsense because it's going, you're worthless. This is all your fault. You're never going to get better. Everybody hates you. You look disgusting. There is no hope. And we have to learn not to listen to that because that does not have its best our best interests at heart. Mm. It's, it's always going to want to try and take us down rather than prop us up. So mm. kind of what I do is try and do the opposite of what it's telling me to do which is really difficult, really tough. So like I talk about in the book about a time when I tried to plant you know, a shrub in the garden and it took me the whole day because depression was going, it's never going to grow, you can't do this, just stay in bed. And, and it's kind of, you tell us, you know, you're trying not to believe that, the fight going on. Um, but the fight is really important, you know, and I... I'm a great advocate of using anger with our mental illnesses against our mental illnesses as a motivational force. So that's kind of where the, my books have swear words in the title because it's kind of going, I am not going to be bowed down by you, you know, piss off. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. I am, you know, I am going to plant that tree in the garden, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And usually when we go and do the opposite of what depression is telling us to do, that, you know, we start to feel better because A, we haven't listened to it. And B, we've accomplished something. So 
it's it it is a fight and it takes a lot of energy but it's really really worth doing because depression just wants to take you down you know that's its purpose is to keep you in bed under the duvet well i noticed on on twitter recently you also compared it to that of a bully and so that's another kind of disassociating yourself with the depression in in terms of finding your character then that kind of like awful school playground bully you know yeah is another one right absolutely it you know it really is a bully and and you know we should we shouldn't listen to bullies and we shouldn't be bowed down by bullies because again they just want to take us down you know it's having to fight when you don't feel like you've got a lot of energy to fight but mm. actually any kind of fighting back is is worth huge mm. is worth huge moments you know it, it really does it really does i think it's that thing of when we recognize the voice of depression i talk back, back to depression all the time and i kind of and i often use a different voice so i use quite a kind of angry voice talking back to it so when it says you're worthless, I'll tell it to bugger off. Or when it says don't bother to go there, I'll go there. You know, actually, I'm going to, you know, on your way. You know, so I'll, I will start swearing at it. And it then gives me some motivation and some energy to start fighting back, you know, um, and go, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be ruled by this. This is, this is an illness. I'm not going to be ruled by this illness. And I'm going to try and take as much control back as I can. You emphasise as well taking responsibility for your own illness so not sort of leaning on others to do the work for you if you will it's about helping yourself I I think that one's really important so it's kind of I think you need a cheerleading team around you to enable you to take responsibility for how you feel I know and that sounds like I'm sounding like a secondary school headmaster but I kind of what I mean by that is is when we make the phone call to a helpline or, you know, the psychiatric team, we are saying to ourselves, I can see that I'm unwell. And that beginning journey of acceptance is really important. Mm -hmm. So it's great to have people around you going, oh, can I come with you to the appointment and I'll wait outside and we'll go out for cake afterwards? or, Or can I be by your side when you phone, you know, to get some help? But actually us doing it really helps us to go, yeah, this is something that, that I need to do. And it's, it is part of the acceptance process. And that sort of acceptance process doesn't mean that you bow down to the illness. It just means that you go, OK, I accept at the moment that I'm unwell. And sort of accepting that you're unwell and that it's, that it's your responsibility is gives you some power and it gives you some control. Um, and it means that we're more able to do things for ourselves and it's hard when we make those calls and we don't get the care that we need from services that's really tough so we just have to sort of keep going back but that's when your cheerleaders come in really handy mm. because they'll go just give it another go or I'll tell you what i've heard of this you know low-cost counseling service try that or have you tried this charity have you given them a ring and sort of advice about where to get help mm. and that's why they're they're really helpful so when I'm making those calls for myself I imagine I kind of actually imagine people you know my friends and family in cheerleading outfits you know complete with pom-poms <laughs> sort of standing around me and cheering and cheering me on mm. so I'm still doing the work um 
but but they're there cheering me on and listening as well because even when it's super super hard to do it and it's the last thing again you say like doing the opposite of what depression's telling you to do which is like don't talk to anyone don't see anyone don't pick up the phone that actually helps a lot as well it absolutely does so the amazing thing about 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 talking about your depression and being listened to about depression is that it's incredibly freeing and if you can find someone to talk to about those thoughts then it's it's amazing how talking helps and being listened to helps it really does it validates how we feel um, and it is that feeling of I sort of think about it quite physically there's all this stuff going around around in our bodies and it has to come out it has to come out and the best way for it to come out is you know is through, is through our mouths so when we listen to um you know properly by someone that, that cares it's it's incredibly powerful so I'm a huge advocate of of you know of talking and being listened to something that I thought as well was a great point we're in a world that's you know, being busy is a badge of honour. But you say you should strive. If you suffer from depression, um, probably anxiety too, the worst thing you should do is, like, take on too much and to, to be too yeah. busy. And, and yeah, that, that really hit home for me, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that depression taught me was that I was just doing too much. I was just, I was just doing too much. And, and, and when I have sort of relapse of my depression, it's usually because I've taken on too much. Um, so rest is absolutely crucial. Rest is really, really, really important because your soul kind of needs to heal. You know, it, with depression, it feels like someone's scooped out our soul. You know, we don't know who we are. We don't know what we want. We can't figure out what the world is about and you have to rest. So, you know, depression and other mental illnesses are life-threatening illnesses, and we need to sort of treat them as life-threatening illnesses, just as severe cancer or, you know, strokes or heart attacks. We have to treat it in exactly the same way. And with those mysterious illnesses, we would say you have to rest and your body needs to heal. And it does with depression as well. It absolutely does. So it does mean making sacrifices. So for me that meant that i i work part-time and i changed jobs to something much less stressful so and that helped immeasurably mm. it really it really did um and obviously if you have you know five kids and three guinea pigs that's that's really, that's really difficult um but trying to make some kind of compromise around changing your life will do a huge amount mm. with this sort of recovery journey with, with depression mm-hmm. so yeah if you're running around and taking on things that you, you don't need to actually take on, then depression will feed off that. So depression will feed off stress mm. um, in a big way. You know, it loves to be fed with that stuff. And mm-hmm. It loves to be fed with worry and anxiety, and it will definitely get worse unless we kind of go, no, this is really serious. This is a really, really serious life-threatening illness, and we need to treat it as a serious life-threatening illness. And when we do that, then we kind of go, okay, I need to rest. I need to change my life. I need to take stock. I need to, I need mm. time to heal. Do you think with some people, they're frightened of doing that? And it's like, because then you have to confront the demons a bit. Like if you know where your mind can go, perhaps I want to make sure that I'm really, really busy 
you know, on that hamster wheel. Yeah. So perhaps, which we all know is not rationally, we know it's going to catch up with you, right? There's there's no escape yeah. in that respect. But I, I would imagine some people don't like to think about resting and then yeah. letting the thoughts, the intrusive thoughts take take hold. I think you can rest, but you can do, you can still do occupational healing stuff within that. So you can do, you know, crochet or go for a swim or you can, you know, there's ways of resting. Well, because I, so for a long time, I tried to do mindfulness meditation when I was kind of really ill. And it was just an opportunity for my mind to go, oh, let's have another suicidal thought. Let's think more about how, how shit I am and how, what a terrible person I am. So that wasn't useful for me at that point. But actually, there were other things that were really useful. So what? So yeah, resting doesn't need to be a completely passive. You're just sitting in front and you know on your sofa and staring into the distance. It can be, you know, calming, comforting activities that you're doing within that. Mm -hmm. So it can be watching rubbish television. It can be listening to music. You know, it can be reading really, really trashy magazines. You know, it can it can be those things as well mm -hmm. that will keep your mind occupied, but just on a much lower level. So you're not yeah. going, oh, I need to do this email, and then tomorrow I've got an appointment, and I need to you know, drive to Manchester, and then I need to, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you're doing soothing activities, you know, rather than activities that are just making you run and run and run farther away from what you're running from. You just gave me the perfect opportunity to segue into what I do to get through how to run, swim, cycle, so or sing your way through depression, um, yeah. which you co-edited and you wrote the the intro for, which um, I'm really, really enjoying. And it's basically anxiety and depression sufferers that are sharing what they do to help relieve some of the symptoms or potentially prevent. I actually ended up Googling... Um, Sea water to swimming near me. Because <laughs> um, I was like, sounds scary, but also very liberating. Um, yeah, and uh, I just wondered, like, you know, when when you got to to put this together, like, what were some of the ideas that you got from this book? Because I I think it's such a charming read. Yeah, I, I, so I've done loads of stuff actually. It was amazing reading all those accounts. So. I've I've got much better at um, at bird watching now. I'm not great at knowing what the birds are. You can just spot them. Said. I, <laughs> but I spot them. So yeah. <laughs> so I so I take notice of what they are, and you know it's just really beautiful. You know, so I I was in um, the Aran Isles in the west coast of Ireland recently, um, mm. which are just kind of stunning, stunning place. And, and there was all these amazing birds. I mean, I had no idea what they were, but they were absolutely beautiful. And I was just watching these birds sort of dip in and out and fly on the sea and, you know, wander around on the beach. And it was just, it was just really peaceful and meditative and, you know, it meant that I was sort of staying in the moment. And so I've definitely done that. There's a, also actually cold water swimming. There's a group near me that meets on a Thursday that I contacted and I'm going to I'm going to do some cold water swimming and that's scary it's scary yeah. I have to say but I, I am going to do that um and I then, do a lot of cycling anyway mm -hmm. um so I've been doing I've been doing more of that and that I find really 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 helpful so it, it, it did it was great I was doing some things anyway but it really the book really opened me up to so many other things that I could do mm. um which which I love which was amazing and and 
you know, we've had wonderful feedback from people that have taken up hobbies just for reading the book that have helped. And that's just, you know, that's fantastic. It really is. Yeah. And just a reminder of the simple pleasures in life as well. And, and sometimes we do need to be reminded that, Absolutely. you know, we yeah. can find joy in putting pen to paper or trying a bit of pottery yeah. or whatever it is that it, you know, it doesn't need to be gaming or something which is attacking the senses through screens and uv lights and all of that stuff absolutely i i think actually trying to find moments of joy is kind of you know kind of what life is really all about anyway and certainly when with with any kind of mental illness and mental health struggles having those moments of you can get in moments of pleasure and joy you know that you're kind of winning you know and those activities, all those different activities, give you those moments. Um, and any of those moments, I kind of really encourage people to write down and remember. So I do this on my phone. So I write down all the moments that I've had, you know, real joyous moments. Mm. And, and I, I look back on them. And, it, and it, it's grateful when I'm ill with depression because it reminds me that I can experience joy. But it also generally just reminds me to go out and do stuff that I love. Mm -hmm. It's kind of proper mental health nutrition, you know. It's mm -hmm. really good food, mm -hmm. that stuff. Um, so if, you know, you're crocheting something or you're, you know, or if, you know, even if you're making a pot and it's gone completely wrong, but you're, you know, you're next door to somebody and you're in fits of laughter because of what your, your pot looks like, you know, that's that's what it's about you know that's what it's about those those moments you know with yourself or with other people and that does help you know the book's definitely not going you know what you need to do is try water skiing and your anxiety will just go away you know it's it's it's, it's not saying that at all but it's yeah. saying those activities and hobbies boy do they help you know they really really do help you know mm. and, and you can experiment you know trying to find different ways that work we did the book because we kept hearing about people going do you know what knitting saved my life or you know going to walking in the woods has just been one of the best things for my mental health we kept hearing it kept hearing it kept hearing it and 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 it's absolutely true you know and it, and it's you know often alongside talking therapies and medication and lots of other stuff but I think we've become much better at you know seeing the value of sort of social prescribing and um and hobbies and activities and how they play a part in our you know mental health recovery yeah and some of the activities are solo but quite a few of them are it's about cultivating that community as well isn't it and and sharing the joy amongst maybe new friends which Absolutely. we all know is like very prescriptive in terms of soothing depression if you will that's maybe not the right word but um you know yeah, yeah giving it the elbow um it's the most wonderful time of year, James. <laughs> so we are told again and Apparently again so. and again. <laughs> yeah. On TV, in every shop we go into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's not really for everybody, is no. it? Is it for you? Or can it be a time of struggle? Because it's the emphasis on being jolly and being merry. Yes. It, it's it's not particularly if it's so so my dad died on christmas day which oh, was God. kind of massively inconsiderate of him to be honest you know he could have just waited a couple of days yeah my but, gra um, my granddad passed away on my birthday so i um i, I really, understand that how dare they it's in, exactly how dare they so it's christmas you know when i was great was always tinged with sadness and and now i suppose 
it's just a real mixture of emotions on Christmas Day. So I, I always spend time, you know, thinking about my dad. Um, and I also try and have a nice time. I, I find the kind of relentless, the whole of December music and just being bombarded with Christmas just really overwhelming. I was in the supermarket this morning and there was just Christmas stuff everywhere and there was just loud music, you know, of Christmas music. And I was just going, this is just, this is just horrendous. And I think, you know, if you're alone over Christmas, if you just lost somebody, died over Christmas, if, you know, there are triggers for your Christmas, then this build-up is, is incredibly hard, you know, because it's that, it is that thing of, it's going to be a lovely day. And actually for a lot of people, it's not a lovely day, you know, it's a really, really difficult day. And I think the trick is to take it incredibly slowly, you know, the actual day, just go kind of moment by moment by moment. Um, if you get some joy out of the day, that's fantastic. It can be that your aim is just to get through the day yeah. and, that, and that is absolutely fine. Mm. Um, because I think it's that constant messaging throughout December of, this is great, this is fantastic, this is going to be really good. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, we know that's not the reality. Yeah. Um, and yeah. a lot of that is, you know, purely kind of, you know, to sell stuff. Yeah. Um, so we have to be really gentle and we're really careful. It's such an emotive month, December yes. and Christmas. There's yes. so many emotions of memories or worries of difficulties. It's so, you know, so emotive. And and emotive, you can be emotive in a really good way. So you're reminded of the people that love us and, you know, how we get together with people. But emotions are really, really heightened. And, and when emotions are really heightened, there's always a a risk of things not going great you know mm. and uh, yeah i think it's it's important to not just look after ourselves but look after those around us as well because we're not the only ones thinking this you know this is this is quite common yeah. and i actually wanted to to ask you about this which comes with a with a bit of a trigger warning to our listeners but um i noticed that i did an episode on suicide and suicide prevention and over yeah. the past we released it a while ago now, but over the past few weeks, we've had a real spike in listeners, which I find very troubling and, and worrying, and um, which is why I feel like you having attempted suicide yourself more times than one, let's just say. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, multiple times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, it's just a difficult time of year. And we're still in the midst yeah. of a pandemic with very confusing messages where mm. we think we're coming out of it and then bang, there's another announcement. You you describe it as as wanting to put an end to unbearable pain. And mm. again, because you such a uh, have a great way with words, like is it a physical pain? Is it an emotional pain? Is it an a mental mm. pain? I guess what I'm getting at is if maybe we can better understand it, then we can help yeah. each other through it hopefully yeah. so for me and a lot of people i've talked about who have sort of ongoing suicidal thoughts and have attempted suicide a lot is that it's an unbearable emotional pain so the pain is so acute that you want to do anything to get rid of it and so that's when your mind goes to suicide because you think well actually the way out of this unbearable pain is that if i'm no longer here and if i'm no longer here i can no longer feel the pain so it's it's i think probably the psych psychologists and psychiatrists would call it psych ache um 
but for me, I just kind of call it, you know, it's unbearable emotional pain. And it's, do you know, it's so difficult to describe what it's like unless you felt it. But it's, it's an utterly overwhelming sense of there is no hope. And the pain in your head, the emotional pain in your head is so overwhelming, so overwhelming that you want to get rid of it. So, and, I, and it is really hard for those that haven't experienced that to understand it. It's kind of like, you know, I've had friends say to me, but how, how can you feel like that? And I'm kind of going, well, I don't know. That's, that's how I felt at points, you know, and how occasionally I still feel at points. And, you know, I'm better equipped to deal with that now, but, you know, I still have those thoughts. And, you know, we have to be much more open about talking about this. You know, we really, really, really do. You know, there's been lots of leaps and strides in mental health, but... I think one of the things that we don't want to talk about, which is why it's fantastic that you've spoken about on the previous podcast and, and, and this one as well, mm-hmm. is that we have to talk about mm-hmm. it and talk about it and talk about it. And we have to be able to create conversations where we use the word suicide and you know people say they felt suicidal and maybe they still do. And we talk about the reasons and we talk about what it feels like because there'll be so many people out there going, oh, do you know what? I feel like that too. I feel like that too. I think a lot of people are really afraid of going, well, I don't know how to how to take care of somebody who's suicidal, but actually the worst thing to do is to not talk about it. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, definitely. It's always, always better to talk about it. It won't make it worse. Um, it won't make the person more suicidal. It's going to do the opposite. It's going to relieve them of a lot of that burden. Yeah, you mentioned you've stayed in a suicide respite center, which I admit, what is a suicide respite center? Because I've never heard of it. And and again, I thought, well, I have to ask you because this might be a glimmer of light or hope to somebody else listening that's not heard of it either. Absolutely. So there are more of them um, coming up in the country. So the one I went to is called Maytree, which which is in London. Um, and I think they're opening one soon in Manchester, I think. And there's a similar one in uh, Liverpool called James's Place. And they're basically, they're run by charities and they're kind of non-medical um, settings, houses where people can go when they're sort of actively suicidal. And they are incredibly important places. It was one of the places that you know helped me save my life because you're able to talk about your suicidal thoughts freely and with people that know why you're there and want to have care for you and want to talk about suicide. So because it's so taboo and it's so scary for the people that love us as well as ourselves that, you know, people aren't sure how to talk to you about it, but the people there, so there are, where I went to stay at Maytree, there were staff and there were volunteers and you stayed for um, four nights and you had a mixture of, of counselling sessions and time chatting with the volunteers and you had your meals made for you. And it was like staying in someone's house. You had your own room and your own bathroom. And I stayed with sort of two other people. So there's there not a huge, you know, a huge amount of people. It's pretty much the opposite of being in psychiatric hospital, you know, and I think this is the future for all sorts of suicide prevention and suicide care is is these places um because it was comfortable and it was nurturing and it was caring and it was compassionate and i could talk freely about suicide and that taking away that burden of 
not being able to talk about it. It's like I didn't know how to talk to my family about it because they were too worried. I didn't know how to talk to my husband about it because he was too worried. But there I could say, oh, you know, I feel suicidal because of this. And I, and then I attempted suicide doing that. And I still feel suicidal. And I could talk about all those dark thoughts that um, needed to get out. And so they are the most compassionate, amazing places. And that's the kind of crisis services that we need. I, you know, I'm convinced that's the kind of crisis services that we need. Mm. Um, they're very, very special places. And I think that is the future for sort of, you know, crisis suicidal care are these places where they're comfortable, you, you're looked after. I mean, I could I could come and go as I please. So, you know, I, I was in London and I hired bikes and I came back and, you know, I talked to volunteers really late into the night and um, I had my meals made for me and, you know, I walked around the garden and, and I talked and talked and talked about what was going on for me and why I felt suicidal and, and that was incredible, it really was. And also you mentioned about suicide crisis text services as well. How does that work? Because you're not, you're obviously, you're texting with a stranger, I guess, which maybe people would find easier yeah. as a first step than going to a loved one or admitting themselves to like a, yeah. a respite centre. Absolutely. So there's there's helplines like Calm um, and the Shout helpline that, you know, they will have been trained to expect people to talk about suicidal thoughts and they won't be shocked um, and you'll be listened to. And, and I think crucially, certainly for me, when I talk about suicidal thoughts, it's not someone immediately wanting to rescue me and say, oh, but look what you've got to live for, because that that technique doesn't work. So when people jump in and go, oh, but look, you've got a husband and a cat and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It, when your suicidal thoughts are so prominent, when that, when that pain is so acute, it's right in front of your head and that's all you can see. And so that, therefore, that's what you want to talk about first. So they are great places because um, those helplines will want to listen to what's going on for you. You need to talk about what's going on for you before you can sort of look at what hope there is in your life. If, if, if it jumps to people going, but but, you know, Look what you do for a living you have a fantastic career you know we know very clearly that there are people that you know famous people that have died by suicide that on the surface of it we think oh but they had a great life you know they had a successful career and they have money and the huge house it doesn't make any difference it makes no difference at all because that pain overrides everything so you need to have opportunities to talk about that pain and so yeah so and helplines will give you that opportunity it sometimes takes a bit of getting used to because you are talking to a stranger. Um, but the opportunity to unburden is really important when you're suicidal. So that someone is listening to you say, well, this is what's going on for me. This is how I feel. And they aren't there trying to instantly kind of tell you that you should be feeling better or trying to rescue things. I think we're slowly learning that the approach to when people are suicidal has to come from a place of compassion to understand that pain. So when I when I feel like that, I want someone to acknowledge the pain that I'm in. I want someone to go, that must be really awful that you're in so much pain. I'm really sorry you're in so much pain. And then I can go, oh, okay, okay, so you kind of get it. You know, I don't want someone to go, you know, right, but look, but look what you have in your life. You know, I don't, I don't want someone to do that. I want them to see the pain that I'm in, to acknowledge the pain that I'm in. Because when I, when it's sort of that is seen and heard and validated 
and I get an opportunity to talk about that either, you know, in whatever service it might be, either by text or on the phone, then I'm able to eventually find a way through because I've had the opportunity to unload about it. And what, what we found, um, certainly when I was working in care and for myself, is that when I've spent time talking about my suicidal thoughts, afterwards, the suicidal thoughts lessen. You know, it's lessened massively because I've had the chance to talk. Um, so, yeah, there are loads of different different helplines, you know, open at different times and, you know, general mental health help health helplines that like Samaritans, like Shout, like Calm. Um, I, I, for me, I, I much prefer sort of texting or messaging. I find that much easier than, than talking on the phone. But from other people, it might be that talking might, might be a really good thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, you may not get a person that completely connects with you. So you might need to try someone different. You know, they're, they're sort of human beings as well. But yeah, keep on trying with the waiting list for help, you know, and, and I've waited I once waited two years to get some um, cognitive behavioural therapy when I was really ill. And I got there and it was just a disaster and I, and I didn't like the therapist and I just stormed out. It was horrendous. So we need to find other opportunities. And a lot of these charities do fantastic work at yeah. supporting people. I was recommended the book from a therapist, a Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Dummies. I was okay, like, yeah. wow, they've actually got CBT for dummies. I was like, they really have got, got it for everything. Yeah, they, they do indeed. <laughs> they do, they've, got it, they've got it all covered. <laughs> yeah, wow, this has been incredible. Let's sort of close things on a maybe a little bit of a more positive, hopeful note. And yeah. um, recovery is about finding meaning. You suggest finding a job you actively look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. I do indeed, yeah. I, I, so what I found is that, that doing a job that I love, so for, for me working, working in a library, you know, I love going to work. I genuinely love going to work. Um, and, it, and I don't get stressed about it. And, and that is incredibly important. So most of us will need to work for, you know, to have an income in some form unless you're incredibly lucky, but most, you know, most of us need, need to work. Mm-hmm. So finding a job that you're passionate about and can find meaning in, and particularly, as you're saying, just then, that finding meaning in is really important, mm-hmm. um, is absolutely, I think, is absolutely crucial. You know, being stuck in a job that is incredibly stressful, that all you do is worry about it over the weekend and you're worried about it in the evenings and you're taking mm-hmm. all the stuff home and you're working till late at night to try and catch up and you don't really believe in, you know, what it's doing is just is is incredibly traumatic you know yeah we have to spend a lot of time at work yeah. we really do we calculated the hours that we spent at the work over a lifetime it would be absolutely enormous we spend more time at work than we do at home so it's got to be something that mm. we're passionate about that we like doing that doesn't feel like work mm. um and that gives us meaning because that when we have that sort of connection to something that's meaningful for us it 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 become it doesn't become a job you know it becomes something that that's fantastic to do mm. and that's a huge huge part of mental well-being i think i agree it's like we're conditioned to think you know we'll be happy if we have a nice car and and a, a, a swanky house and yeah. you know we buy these shoes but then actually yeah. like you said i mean the joy of doing something that you love 
is far better for us than having a smooth ride with heat heat warming seats or whatever absolutely. yeah <laughs> a- 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 absolutely you know those there are things that you know give us joy for a brief moment you know it's it's, it's kind of like a sugar rush those kind of mm-hmm, things you know mm-hmm. um but actually we kind of need to look sort of long term about what's going to sustain us over our kind of working life and and do you know what it's just not worth it it's not you know because you can then afford a, a fantastic car and all these kind of things that doesn't compensate for the fact that you hate your job and, and it's stressful and you don't get supported um, or you, it just doesn't compensate for that at all. So sometimes certainly, so I had to make a big sacrifice in terms of money and, and, and you know, but actually it paid dividends because, you know, I am much, much happier in what I do. So yeah, I definitely earn less money than, than I used to. Um, and you have to make changes within that, but I am, much 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 happier because i don't sit there in the evenings worried about oh i haven't done this and oh i didn't send my email and oh gosh i've got these 17 things to do on monday and, and that's what all I, all I was thinking about over the weekend was how am i going to get these 17 things done and my boss wants me to do that and it's like just a kind of endless noise of worry endless noise of worry and it's it's not what well, jobs are not worth our mental health they just aren't they really they really aren't you know we all need to earn money to pay bills, or absolutely. But if you can make a compromise, if you can make a change into something that's more meaningful, that might be less well-paid, but it's less stressful, then that is a winner. That really, really is a winner. You know, and the, the heated car seats can wait, you know, because you yeah. are more important. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what brilliant advice to, to wrap up this conversation. James, a busy year for you next year. Um, two books out. Busy year. <laughs> I yeah, mean, absolutely. goodness gracious me. I mean, I cannot recommend enough how to tell depression to piss off 40 ways to get your life back. You're kind of surprised that you enjoyed reading something that's a heavy <laughs> subject, you know what I mean? Or that you giggle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it's definitely um yeah, a lot of people say kind of, oh, I really enjoyed enjoy I really enjoyed it and I really laughed, but that feels wrong. And I'm like, no, no, that's that's great. It's mm. great that you laugh. Mm. That's wonderful. That's it's you're supposed to laugh. Yeah. So then we need to look out for how to tell anxiety to sod off 40 ways to get your life back. The sister book, if you will. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So the sister book is out um in January. So yeah, January's quite soon, isn't it? Yeah, so in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Um yeah. so yeah, that's 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 the kind of sister book. Um and, and depression and anxiety are kind of BFFs, you know, they go around mm-hmm. together a lot, you know, they really do. So yeah, it's it's this it's the same format, you know, different different techniques, because they're they're different beasts, even though you know a lot of us experience both of them, there are different beasts. So there are sort of 40 different ways to manage anxiety. And then in July, I have a book out called uh, How to Get to Grips with Grief. So again, written in the same style, written in 40 ways to to manage it. Um, and again, written written with some humour so that it's accessible. So yeah, yeah, next year, <laughs> next year is busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad I caught you when I did before you're too busy. <laughs> good busy though, good busy doing your job. Very good busy. Yeah. Very good busy. Thank you again. This has been great and I know it's going to help lots of people and, and that's the aim that's of the problem. game with what we're doing. No problem, my pleasure. <laughs> 
So many great takeaways from that conversation, right? Thanks again to James Withy for chatting to my possible self. I've been Gabby and let me tell you, I've pre-ordered his book, How to Tell Anxiety to Sod Off, 40 Ways to Get Your Life Back. It's going to land on my doorstep early January and I cannot wait to read it. Thank you to you for listening to another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. It's pretty much time for me to sign off. I only want to add that again, if you did find any of this conversation triggering, then if you're listening via the My Possible Self app, do hit the crisis button to find lots of information on her, how and where you can get some professional help. Don't struggle, do speak up and take care. Until the next one, bye for now.